song, that last verse that we sung together, O come thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. That's describing the, the rod of Jesse, none other than Jesus the Christ, who did come to do that very thing, to rescue his people from the depths of hell, to free us from the tyranny of Satan and to give us victory over the grave. That's why we're here today. Happy Mother's Day to the moms in the room. And because we love mothers, we're going to consider Jesus this morning. So let's go to God now and pray and ask him for his help as we look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you. We hope understanding ourselves rightly that we, just like the nation of Israel, were born in bondage to Satan, to sin. We were born in bondage to the passions of our flesh. And we, like all men, were born without hope in ourselves. Father, we come this morning not because we think that we have something in ourselves to offer that is worth anything, we come this morning because we know that we need your son. We're here today because we understand that we are in need of righteousness that only he provides, because we are in need of forgiveness for sin that only Christ has accomplished. And so we pray that as we look to your word, that we would see ourselves in your word, that we would see you as you have revealed yourself in your righteousness and in your justice, and in your mercy. And we pray that we would see Christ. And that you would, by your word and by the power of your spirit, that you would sustain our faith in Christ today and even impart faith to those who do not yet know Jesus savingly. Come and do this great work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The beginning words, the opening words of Scripture are without doubt the single greatest opening line of any piece of literature in world history. Like far better than it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, is in the beginning, God. Those words are startling and jarring if we try to wrap our minds around them. In the beginning, God. No other book no other piece of writing opens with words that inspire that kind of wonder and awe. And frankly, no other book opens with words that are that bold. The audacity of that statement in the beginning is startling. And what's cool about the Bible is that it only gets better from there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and off we go. It gets better from there because the Bible reveals the story of world history. The Bible reveals the story, even more importantly than that, of redemptive history. How God created everything. He created it good and he made human beings uniquely in his image and gave us a covenant, commands to live by. And we know that our first parents violated that covenant. They disobeyed God. And therefore, the entire creation and human beings along with it were plunged into ruin. But God made a promise that he would send a redeemer. And from the third chapter of the Bible, which is in the very beginning of this very long book, all the way until the end, is the story of redemption, of God accomplishing his purposes and his plans in the world that he had made to save his people whom he had chosen and set his love on from before the foundation of the world. It's a remarkable story. That story, that framework, that understanding of Scripture is important for us all the time. And it's perhaps especially important when we come to the Old Testament. Many of us, if you grew up in the church at all, have experienced the flannel board in Sunday school, if you've got one stuffed away in your closet at home, no shame. 
Maybe you do. I can remember as a young young boy um, in classes in Sunday school and things like that, and the flannel board was a thing. Many of us, what, what we want to illustrate with that, what I want to illustrate with that is the way that we were taught Scripture, the way that we were taught the Old Testament in particular. With the best of intentions, right? I'm not impugning anybody's motivations, but we were taught the Old Testament as a collection of stories, as a collection of great tales of great people and what they did for God. Maybe we were taught the Old Testament as a collection of very moral stories, like a Christian version of Aesop's fables, right? We look at the story and there's the moral truth and the principle to glean, and that's what we are to take away from it. So many of us learned the Old Testament that way. Friends, it's critical that we would, when coming to the Scripture and when coming to any book of the Old Testament, any passage in the Old Testament, which is comprised of the book of Genesis all the way through to Malachi, that we would see every text in that portion of Scripture as a link in a chain, a link in the chain of redemptive history. So today we're going to start a seven-part sermon series to the book of Micah. Micah is referred to as one of the minor prophets, the major ones. However, we want to distinguish those, right? This is not my idea, not yours either. The major prophets being Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then the minor prophets being Hosea on through to Malachi, being 12 of those in our our Bibles. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Micah chapter 1 and verse 1. I'm going to give you a moment to do that. It's not maybe a famous place to flip in your Bible drill, so you might need a moment. It occurs after, so you have in terms of the minor prophets, after the major prophets, you have Isaiah, major prophet. Then you have Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Then we have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. That's where we are in the order of the canon. As you're flipping there, I want to give us a little bit of background on the book. And then a little bit of an overview in terms of a major theme. And then we're actually going to read chapter one. So you can just patiently sit there with Bibles open as we consider some of these things together. By way of background, by way of background, this is the opening sermon. I pray this is helpful to you. Micah prophesied in the days of the Judean kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. You can see that in chapter one and verse one. This is situating him in history. So this would have been the latter part of the 8th century B.C. So think like 750 to 700 B.C. in that range. So it's been a number of years ago from where we sit today. Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, who was prophesying primarily in Judah, the southern kingdom. And he was also a contemporary of Hosea, who was prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel, the capital city there being Samaria. Micah's prophecies were directed actually to both the northern kingdom of Israel, again, with its capital being Samaria, and also the southern kingdom of Judah, with its capital city being Jerusalem. So while Isaiah is prophesying again to the southern kingdom, Hosea to the northern kingdom, Micah is essentially speaking to both subsets of God's people, Israel and Judah. Micah is not identified, as many of the prophets are, by his father or his family lineage. I don't think we should read too much into that, but he is identified by a location. You see that in chapter 1 and verse 1. Micah of Morasheth. Morasheth was a small rural town about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So he was not from a big city. His family is not named. It's possible that he, like Amos, had a very modest upbringing. It's possible. Don't know that for sure. Micah's call to prophetic ministry is also not recorded for us. So there's no dramatic presentation of how this man ended up in the ministry that God gave him. But we do know that his prophetic ministry not only is recorded for us and is helpful for us even today, but we know that his ministry had an impact even on one of the kings of his day. His ministry had an impact on none other than King Hezekiah of Judah. In Jeremiah's Prophecy chapter 26 in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 26, verses 16 to 19, we read about how Jeremiah the prophet had prophesied judgment on Judah. And the leaders of Judah are not happy about that and want to kill him. But then we read this. 
the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, this man, meaning Jeremiah, does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders and of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying. So here's what these leaders in the day of Hezekiah said about the prophet Micah. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, citing Micah chapter 3 and verse 12, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountains of the house a wooded height. Then the elders asked, did Hezekiah, king of Judah and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. In other words, these men in years after Micah is long dead, years after Hezekiah is dead, they reference Micah's ministry, his prophecy that turned the heart of a king. And they said, look, Jeremiah is saying nothing different than what Micah said. And Hezekiah listened to Micah. We ought not to kill Jeremiah for what he's saying. We know that Micah's ministry had an impact. Even thinking about the New Testament, the gospel writer, Matthew, cites Micah in his gospel. You realize that Micah is the reason, in terms of the revelation of Scripture, that we know that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, we'll get there. But Matthew cites Micah, chapter 5, in helping us understand that Jesus was born in the city of David in Bethlehem. And Micah, in his own words, if we wanted to know his own understanding of his calling, we could look to chapter 3 and verse 8, where he says this, As for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. I'm filled with the Spirit of the Lord to speak things that are right and true concerning the transgression and the sin of God's people. That's how Micah understood his ministry. In terms of major themes of this book, I think these will become quite obvious even today, and I trust they will over the coming weeks. There are really two parallel themes that run throughout this entire book. Those are the themes of judgment and then God's redemption. Judgment on Judah and Israel for their sin, so Judah is going to be exiled by the nation of Babylon. Micah will talk about that. Israel is going to be scattered and conquered by the Assyrians even before that. Micah will speak of those things as well. Remember that Assyria would conquer the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. That's in Micah's lifetime. This would happen. And then about 150 years later in 586, the southern kingdom and Jerusalem in particular would fall to Babylon. All of that in terms of the Assyrian invasion and the conquering of the northern kingdom and then the Babylonian conquering of the southern kingdom and exile, all of those things are included in this book before they take place. It's pretty remarkable. But alongside that theme of judgment is the theme of God's plan of redemption and his steadfast covenant love for his people. He will not swerve. He will not deviate. In spite of the people's sin, God remains faithful to redeem his chosen ones. And we're going to see that throughout this book. And I pray it's helpful to us. So with all of that by way of background and some this thematic introduction to Micah, let's read chapter one together. We're going to be considering chapter one today, 16 verses in total. And let me read those for us now. This is the word of God. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? 
Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they will return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth Aphra, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zaanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Izel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Meroth wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath. The houses of Oxib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So what I want to do this morning, friends, is to consider the text in three sections. It breaks down nicely into three sections. And then after after considering the text in those three pieces, I want to offer three reflections, three reflections. So three and then three. So we'll turn our attention now to the passage. The first section of the text is simply chapter one and verse one. We won't spend a lot of time here. Just in my notes, I've got it sort of labeled an introduction to the prophet. Micah, the introduction to the prophet. We read who the prophet is here, Micah of Moresheth. We've already considered him, his hometown, 20 miles south-southwest of Jerusalem. We've thought about the era in which he prophesied, again, the latter half of the 8th century BC in the reign of these three kings in particular in the southern kingdom of Judah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. We also see that he prophesied concerning Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, and he prophesied concerning Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom. He's speaking to both Israel and Judah. Now we move on to the second section of our text. This will be verses two through seven. And this here, friends, just for the note takers in the room, is a pronouncement of judgment with a particular focus on Samaria, a particular focus on Israel, the northern kingdom. So judgment on Samaria, on Israel. Let's put our eyes on verse two. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. God's holiness and his splendor, his majesty are all over this verse. God hails from heaven. He reigns in his holy temple. He is enthroned in the heavens, and he speaks to the creatures that he has made. He's going to speak through his mouthpiece, the prophet. And then these most frightening words, let the Lord God be a witness against you. More terrifying words could not be spoken to a human being than for your creator God, who is holy and righteous and good and all-powerful and all-knowing, right, to say I am going to take the stand against you because of your iniquity. Those are harrowing words. Then we see in verse three, behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He's going to come out from where he has been sitting enthroned to tread on the high places of the earth. Those high places, if you're familiar with that phrase throughout the Old Testament, high places refers to, in particular, places of idolatry. Places where altars were erected to other gods. You'll hear this refrain over and over again 
in like first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, when we read about the various reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah, how the high places were not taken down. People were still going to the high places to offer sacrifices to other gods. They were worshiping other gods. So the Lord is coming out of heaven as it were to tread on the high places of the earth. He's going to destroy idolatry. He's going to crush and deal with the worship of other gods. Verse four, very vivid language here. The mountains will melt under him. His power, his judgment, his holiness, his wrath is so great, so hot, so intense that the mountains themselves will melt. And the valleys will split open like wax before a fire, right? That's a great image of how the mountains will melt. Imagine that. And then the mountains just running down through the crevices in the valley because of the holiness and the wrath of God against sin. Then verse five, why all this judgment? Why the wrath? Why the melting of mountains and the destroying of high places? Here it goes, verse five. All this is for the transgression of Jacob. It's for the sins of the house of Israel. Now, many familiar with earlier pieces of the Old Testament will know that Israel, before his name was Israel, right? For whom the nation was named, his name was Jacob. So Abraham fathered Isaac, who fathered Jacob. And God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And then Israel had 12 sons. From those 12 sons would come the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So when you see Jacob, just that's synonymous with Israel in the text. So this is for the wrath and the judgment and God coming out of heaven to judge and to take the stand against his people is because of their sin. It's because of the transgression of his people and the sins of the house of Israel. And then these rhetorical questions. What is the transgression of Israel? Is it not Samaria? So he's saying, what's the sin of Israel? It's the capital city. It's everything that the capital city Samaria represents. That's the transgression. It would be like somebody saying, what's the sin? What's the problem with America? Is it not Washington, D.C.? Right. That kind of representation idea with our capital. The capital city Samaria of the northern kingdom was notoriously wicked. And in particular, there were some kings who reigned from there, who reigned over the northern kingdom of Israel, who were especially bad. We are told about them, namely Jeroboam, the son of Solomon, Ahab and Omri. These three men maybe stand out above the rest as being especially wicked and they reigned from Samaria. But it goes on the last portion there, verse five. And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? What is the altar to a pagan God with respect to Judah? Is it not its capital city, Jerusalem? Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God, has become a place of idolatry. That's what the language is communicating. These are sweeping indictments, right? This is gripping, powerful language in terms of the severity of what's going on. Sweeping indictments of both the northern kingdom of Israel and also the southern kingdom of Judah. In other words, it's a sweeping indictment against the entirety of God's people. They are guilty. Verse six, put your eyes there. Specifically with respect to Samaria now. Through the prophet, the Lord speaks. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country. He's going to level it, right? I'm going to destroy Samaria. A place for planting vineyards because there's no city there anymore. Remember that the Assyrian nation in 722 would do this very thing. So when Micah says, the Lord says through Micah, I'm going to level Samaria and I'm going to make it a place where you plant crops because there's no city there anymore. I'm going to lay bare 
her foundations. I'm going to pour her stones down in the valley. This happened in the year 722. The city was leveled and destroyed. God was not bluffing in terms of what he said he would do. Verse 7, though, he goes on. The Lord through Micah says, All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. So all her idols. All her wages shall be burned with fire. Her idols I will lay waste. And then this language here at the end of the verse indicates that the funding of the idol making was nothing other than cult prostitution. Right? That there were temple prostitutes funding the making of idols in the nation of the Lord God. This is what he means here. Put your eyes there. From the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them. The business, the money-making business in the temple of prostitution is how we funded the idol-making. It's how we funded the idolatry. To the fee of a prostitute, these idols shall return. What's this mean? That as they're beaten to pieces and the, the metals, the precious metals out of which they're made are beaten to pieces and are taken away by the Assyrians, the Assyrians will in turn, according to their pagan practices, do the same thing. Cult prostitution, idol making. The indictment here is that the nation of Israel has functioned like a pagan nation would function. Just like Assyria, through cult prostitution, makes idols, Israel has done the same thing. It's a pronouncement of God's judgment. So in other words, I'm leveling the city there will be no inhabitants there. It will be a place for planting crops. Her idols will be destroyed. She has operated. She being Samaria, Israel, has operated like a pagan nation. Therefore, judgment. Let's put our eyes now verses 8 through 16 as we move into our next section. So this is our third section of the text. For the note takers in the room, just kind of a handle for you. This is also a pronouncement of judgment, but now on Judah. A pronouncement of judgment on Judah. In Jerusalem. So we've been thinking primarily about Samaria and the northern kingdom. The focus now begins to turn in verse 8. Samaria is still in view in verses 8 and 9, but we're turning the focus towards Judah and Jerusalem. The Lord through the prophet Micah tells us this. There will be lamentation and there will be wailing. The people of Israel will go stripped and naked. This is pointing forward to the way in which they would be deported from their land by the Assyrians, right? The Assyrians would send them off, would scatter them amongst the nations. So the Israelites will be taken away this way. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Again, these are not domesticated animals, right? These are animals that live in a wilderness. So Israel here is depicted as a wasteland, not as a city. Then verse 9, her wound, that her still I think would be referring to Samaria. Her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. This is often depicted even in the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles that the wicked practices of the northern kingdom made their way into the southern kingdom of Judah. So that's a little bit of what's going on there with that language. But this is also a direct reference to the Assyrian invasion. The Assyrians would come and wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel but then they would also continue to invade further down into the southern kingdom of Judah. We are familiar from Scripture with how the Assyrians under King Sennacherib would make their way all the way to the gates of Jerusalem, right? This is where the Assyrians under Sennacherib and the messengers and the envoys are telling Hezekiah, the king of Judah, like, you need to basically do what we ask or we're going to level the city. Hezekiah refuses to do that. So then the envoys keep coming back and telling the men guarding the city, don't listen to your king. We've conquered everybody. We've left a wake of destruction. Don't let Hezekiah mislead you. We will take the city to which the Lord responds that that's not going to happen. And he puts 185,000 men of the Assyrian army to death in a night, right? And Jerusalem is spared for a time. A little over 100 years later, of course, Jerusalem would fall to the Babylonians. But this is what's depicted here, friends, in verses 8 and 9. Samaria is wiped out. Israel is wiped out. The wound of Samaria has come to Judah all the way to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. The Assyrians and judgment is coming all the way to the gates of the holy city. Now, we turn our attention to verses 10 and following. 
So these verses, what is going to be depicted here in verses 10 through 15, are the names of a number of the fortified cities that would be conquered by the Assyrians. So this is like the military conquest through the land is taking this course. And these cities are conquered as the Assyrian army advances, right, on its way to Jerusalem. Now, there's also a word play here that we're going to see with the names of these cities. And we're going to consider that together. This is all a depiction of the judgment that's coming and the mourning that should be happening. Here we go. Verse 10. We see, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. Gath sounds like the Hebrew word for tell, right? So tell it not in the city's name that means tell. Weep not at all. Then we see in Bethlehaphra, roll yourselves in the dust. Well, that Bethlehaphra means literally house of dust. In the house of dust, roll yourselves in the dust. Here comes judgment, right? Verse 11. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, which means pleasant or beautiful. But see how they are to pass on their way, not in beauty, but in nakedness and shame. Mourning and judgment is coming. The inhabitants of Zayanan do not come out. Well, Zayanan sounds like the Hebrew word for come out. The people in the town that means come out won't come out because of fear because of the incoming army and the evasion, invasion and judgment is coming. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. Beth Ezel means house of taking away. What's being taken away? None other than the sons and the daughters of Israel are being carried off, right, in exile. Mourning, judgment, it's coming. Verse 12 For the inhabitants of Meroth, which sounds like the Hebrew word for bitter, the inhabitants of bitter wait anxiously for good because there's nothing good going on, because disaster has come. From the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem, right? This is the judgment of God through the Assyrian army. He's a God of means, right? Not just ends. We move on. Verse 13. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. Lachish, again, sounds familiar, or excuse me, similar to a Hebrew word construction that would have referenced like racehorses, fast horses, right? So hook up the steeds, the fast horses, not the horses for battle. Hook up the racehorses to the chariots because you're fleeing for your lives in Lachish. Verse 14, therefore, you shall give parting gifts. Think of like a dowry, a wedding gift, right? Tribute will be paid to this foreign army. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath, which means one who is betrothed, right? You're going to pay a dowry, a tribute to a foreign army. The houses of Achzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. This was a city that was known for making pottery. It was a very productive business. It generated a lot of revenue for the kingdom. Well, instead of being able now to depend upon the revenue from Oxib, that revenue will now go to a different place. That revenue will go to the Assyrians rather than to the nation of Israel. Therefore, the kings of Israel can no longer count on it and they are deceived. Verse 15, I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merashah. Again, that word sounds like the Hebrew word for conqueror. But this is not a good conqueror who's coming. This is not like good news that conqueror is here. This is like bad news. Your enemy is at the gates and he is going to destroy you. The glory of Israel, second half of verse 15, that literally could be rendered the nobles, like the elite, the aristocracy of Israel shall come to Adullam. Well, what does that hearken back to? That harkens back to where King David fled from Saul. David, when he was on the run for his life, hid himself in the cave of Adullam. We read of that in 1 Samuel 22. Well, now the elite people of Israel, the nobles, the aristocracy are running for their lives and hiding in caves, just like David had to do when he fled from Saul. All of this to say it's very poignant and powerful play on words and word pictures of what's going to happen in the nation of Israel. And then we make our way now to verse 16. Judah, 
is to mourn for her children. We see it here. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Shave your heads. This is a ritual of mourning, grieving. It's like sackcloth and ashes kind of stuff, right? Shave your heads for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle for your children whom you love so dearly are going to be taken away in exile. Judgment is coming. The children of Judah, as the Assyrians invade and get all the way to the gates of Jerusalem, would be scattered. And I think it's also appropriate to see verse 16 pointing in a maybe more ultimate way to what the Babylonians would do. They would level the city of Jerusalem and take the children of Jerusalem back to Babylon. This is terrible stuff that's happening. Like this stuff that's happening, the judgment that's being prophesied by Micah against Israel and Judah calls into question every single promise that God has made. It's a big deal. Like this is the covenant people of God. He has promised to redeem them and save them and give them a land and all these kinds of things. And he's done those things. He's brought them out of Egypt and he's given them a land. And now destruction They're going to be conquered. They're going to be exiled. They're going to be taken from their land. This cannot be. We should feel that tension. But now, friends, I want to shift in the time that we have left together to consider three reflections from the text. Three reflections from the text. Reflection number one. God is a righteous judge. Reflection number one. God is a righteous judge. So not only is he perfectly righteous, he always does what's right. He's holy. He's absolutely pure. There are none like him. There is no darkness in him, no shadow due to turning at all, no evil. He is upright and never sins. That's all true. And part of what it means for him to be a righteous judge, though, in this context, is that he does what he says he will do. Not just in terms of keeping promises of mercy, but he also keeps promises of judgment. When he says, which he has said over and over again in his word, that he will judge iniquity, he means what he says. He had warned his people over and over and over and over again. If you do these things, you will be judged for this. And he is a righteous judge who does what he says he will do. When he told his people that he would reward them for obedience and punish them for sin, he wasn't bluffing. It wasn't just some hypothetical thing. He meant it. Obey my commands and it will go well with you. That's true. Disobey and it will not go well. That's true. The words describing the judgment of God that we've already considered from verses two through four are terrifying. And what's even more scary or scarier, if that's better English, is the fact that that depiction in verses two through four of God's judgment is only a measure of his judgment. Like the judgment, like definite article, will make that look like a candle compared to the sun. That's what's like horrifying. Oh my gosh, like what will the judgment be if the mountains are melting now? God, as we thought about a decent amount today, I won't labor it, through the Assyrians and the Babylonians brought judgment on his people. He is a God of means, not just ends. And how huge and sovereign and awesome is this God who can use the most powerful nations on earth as his instruments? He reigns and rules over history. This is like the prophet Isaiah says about Babylon and Persia ultimately, where he says that I'm going to call my servant Cyrus, Isaiah 45, 46, the Persian king to come and judge Babylon. This is What God does, he rules over the most powerful nations on the planet all the time. And he uses them, in this case, as his instruments of judgment on his own people. He would remove his people from the promised land because of their sin. And he would scatter them and take them into exile because of their transgressions. God is a righteous judge. Reflection number two. This is a sentence, I'll say it twice. The story of Israel, parenthesis in the Old Testament, right? 
is not one of obedience and success, but of disobedience and failure. The story of Israel in the Old Testament is not one of obedience and success, but of disobedience and failure. Now, before I say another word, I do not want to be misunderstood. This is not a a slamming, like taking a shot at the people of Israel. We are absolutely no different, in no way different. So you could take out Israel. Israel is just the people of God in the Old Testament. So the story of the people of God in the Old Testament is not one of obedience and success. It's one of disobedience and failure. It's true of Israel. We are no different. Okay. Think about the history of God's people as revealed in Scripture. I'm going to do this very quickly. God makes a promise to Abraham. He gives him a son, Isaac, who has a son, Jacob. We've already talked about him. His name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. Those become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. They go down into Egypt, right? They're spared from famine by one of the sons, Joseph. But then they are plunged into slavery under the Egyptian rule. So God's people are enslaved in Egypt. Things are not good. God, through Moses, delivers his people miraculously. He saves them from bondage and slavery in the Passover, in the Exodus, Right, The parting of the Red Sea. His people walk through as on dry land. The seas cave over the Egyptians and their whole army is wiped out. Israel is free. God has said, I'm going to give you a land that's yours. A lot happens after the Exodus. Right, The law is given. No sooner is the law given than the people make an idol of the golden calf. Right, They're dancing around it. When Moses comes down the mountain Sinai, Moses sees it and breaks the tablets that had the Ten Commandments on it. Wasn't good. The people grumble against God, right? And they are told by God, you'll spend an entire generation in the wilderness, 40 years. And none of you will see the promised land, but I'm going to give it to your children. He gives them the land, right? Through the conquest of Canaan, the land is theirs. All of the 12 tribes get an allotment. They're all settling. It's all good. But then comes the time of the judges, right? Where everybody does what's right in his own eyes. There's just wickedness and lawlessness every place. Then the kings come, right? The prophet Samuel arrives. The kings come. Saul is the first one, but then comes David. Things are looking better for a time. Under David's son Solomon, the kingdom would reach its height in terms of just its glory and its power and its size and all these things. But then sin, failure, disobedience yet again, right? The kingdom is divided. The kings by and large of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are not good. They, the good kings are the exception, not the rule. So the massive question by this point in history, right? Because we're in the divided kingdom, kings in Israel, kings in Judah, things are not going well. There's disobedience, there's lawlessness. There's these prophecies of judgment and exile. The land they had been given would be taken from them. The question that's the million dollar question is how in the world would God's people ever be saved? How? This is how you read your Bible, right? You read your Bible like this. You look at it and you ask that question. In light of what I'm seeing, the just and righteous judgment of God and the prediction of judgment and exile and all these things, like if it is contingent upon the obedience of God's people, there is no hope. None of these individuals have ever lived a life that could save themselves, let alone anyone else, right? How? How will God's people be saved? How will the promises ultimately be realized and not go away? How will there be, I will be their God and they will be my people in the land that I give them forever? How will that ever be? That's the question. You know the answer. His name is Jesus. Right. The Messiah, the Christ who would come. There had to be one. So when you're asking, how will they ever be saved? It's very clear that there would be one, a ruler, a man, a shepherd king, a prophet, a high priest who would come and accomplish their salvation. 
And when I say there, I could say our, right? We are in this. We're going to think about that more in just a moment. There had to be one who would come and accomplish the salvation of God's people because they would not be able to save themselves. The history, in other words, friends, the history of God's people, like the entire Old Testament, makes Jesus obvious when he shows up. When he shows up, saying all the things he's saying, right? All these things about him. He's born in Bethlehem and born of a virgin and all these kinds of things. It's awesome. But then he starts talking about fulfilling God's law and laying his life down as a penalty, right? To pay a ransom for sinners. It's like light bulbs start going off. He's the one. Think about the first three chapters to Paul's letter to the Romans, right? I'm just going to do this incredibly quickly. Think about Paul's flow of argumentation there. It helps us so much. He talks about the universal sinfulness of man in the second half of Romans 1. Like here's, here's the reality. Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, exchanging the truth about God for a lie, celebrating sin, all of those things, they've been given over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Chapter 2, 1 and following, God is a righteous judge. He rewards those who do good with eternal life. He punishes those who do evil with judgment and wrath. We continue on into the beginning of chapter 3 that we read today. Here's the problem, though. Nobody's good. Nobody's good. No, not one. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. They're all worthless. So God rewards good with eternal life. He punishes evil with wrath and condemnation. But nobody's good. How? How in the world will anybody ever be saved? To quote the Apostle Paul, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they bear witness to the righteousness of God given to God's people through the Messiah. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is your salvation. This is Israel's salvation. right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that all means all. And all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfactory sacrifice through His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. He didn't wipe Israel off the map. He looked over their sins because Jesus was coming. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, the Savior. This is how we read our Bibles. Reflection number three. And this is our final one for today. We are in the story of redemption. That's it. We are in the story of redemption. Genesis chapter 15. Verses 1 through 6. I think Bruce is going to put these verses on the screen. I'm going to read them for us. This may be familiar to many. It's God's promise to Abram, whose name would be changed to Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So God had promised him a great nation would be born from his line, right? He's going to have many sons and daughters. And he's like, Lord, how's that going to happen when I don't even have one kid? Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. When you read that, it's not wrong that you would understand that you, that we, are amongst that number. Those stars that Abraham looked up at, your offspring's going to be as great as that. You're in that. I'm in that. Just like all the saints through history are in that. 
because of Christ, right? We are in the story of redemption. The Bible is about the grace of God unfolding in order to bring about that promise. From Genesis 15 forward, that's what's happening is God is delivering on that promise that he made to Abraham. I'm going to give you an offspring that's as numerous as the stars. He had made a promise even before he made one to Abraham, to Adam and Eve, right? That he would raise up one. Someone would come from the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. He's keeping that promise too. The Old Testament chronicles the plan and the grace of God on the way to the person, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. I'll say that again. The Old Testament chronicles the plan and the grace of God on the way to the life, death, burial, resurrection, and the triumphant victory of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, the Messiah, the serpent would be dealt the deadly blow, right? Genesis 3.15 is realized in Christ. Through Jesus, God's people would be redeemed. And in all of this, friends, you and I, we see our salvation. So when you read Micah, I know it feels distant, right? But see your sin and your iniquity there. I'm just like these people. I'm just like them. I got no hope if it's up to me. But God would send the Messiah who would come and accomplish salvation. And we, all of us, from Abraham on to now, all of us, just like Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so too for us. We believe the promises of God in Jesus and it's counted to us as righteousness. So friends, this story... We use the word epic too much, but this story is epic. It reaches into eternity past and it extends into eternity future. Let that wash over you for a second, like break your brain. Eternity past extending into eternity future. This great story that's contained here this great history of redemption, first and foremost, is not to be like principalized and moralized. It is to be marveled at. This story is to, meant to produce awe and wonder. Like, do you, do you realize how privileged we are? We meaning people who live in this era. Do you realize how privileged we are? Why do I say that? Our vantage point in looking at all of this, the story of redemption accomplished through Christ, having lived on this side of the Messiah coming, living a perfect life, dying atoning, an atoning death, being buried and raising his life back up again, seated in heaven and coming back. Our vantage point is the longing of Old Testament prophets our vantage point is the longing of Old Testament saints, and it's the longing of angels for crying out loud. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Like the angels, so just think with me. Like as we look at Micah or any other book of Scripture, the angels literally were sitting on the edge of their seats with their popcorn out. Like what is God going to do? Like think about the movie that you've wanted to see more than any movie that's come out in your whole life, whatever that is. Right. And it's like, I'm I can't wait. And I get to the theater. Right. And I buy my popcorn and my milk duds or whatever's your thing. Right. And your big Coke. And you go and you sit and you're just like on the edge of your seat, counting the seconds. Like, when's this thing going to start? I can't wait to see this. That's that's what this is to the angels in heaven. They sit that way. Waiting. What's God going to do? And that's why. That's why it's it's my goal whenever we open the book, for us to come to a passage in particular in the Old Testament and not have our first instinct be, okay, bro, cool, give me the moral of the story. Okay, bro, cool, give me a principle. Give me the takeaway, man. Like, give me, just give me a one, two, three. Not that that's bad. Not that that's bad. We come understanding that the moral of the story is not the point. The principles to glean are not the point. The story is the point right? 
what God has done and is doing and will do is the point. Now, we can talk a lot about secondary points of application and wisdom and all these kinds of things. That's good. And we're going to do that through this series. But the point of it is what the Lord is up to. So here's a really high level takeaway for us. In light of the story being the point, here's the takeaway. How great is the love of God for us? How great is the love of God for us? Like as we sit here and we look at this account and we think about what God has done, particularly through Christ, to where me, a wretched sinner, deserving of wrath, can say, no, I know that that's true of me and I believe that God is holy and I believe that Jesus has accomplished my salvation and has provided me with righteousness and has atoned for my sin. I trust Christ and I am amongst the redeemed. And we say, why me? How? Why me? I don't deserve this. That's an appropriate response. Just like the Israelites didn't deserve anything good and they deserve judgment, so do you. So do I. We don't deserve to be in the story of redemption any more than any of the saints in this book deserve to be in the story of redemption. Let that humble you and me and fill your heart with gratitude. God reveals in his word the unrighteous, the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers will ever enter the kingdom of God. I've done a lot of those things. So have you. Like, how is anybody going to enter the kingdom of God? It's because of Christ and his righteousness counted to us that the Apostle Paul can say, that's what you used to be. Your identity used to be that stuff. You used to be a drunkard and a reviler and sexually immoral. You used to be a thief and a liar and a murderer, but now you're in Christ Jesus by faith. In the context of Micah 1, and in light of this great story of redemption, one immediate kind of wisdom principle, an imperative or a command from the text would be first, trust Christ. Second, right? I'm, I'm going to strive with all my heart in Jesus Christ to love God and not worship idols, right? To pursue the things of God, not things of wickedness. It's a very simple application. I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to battle sin. I'm going to trust Christ and I'm going to seek to not worship stuff that I shouldn't worship. I'm going to trust Christ and I'm going to seek to do good and not evil. We're nearly done. So this is just a question for you. Do you ever, because I know this has happened to me, do you ever look up at the stars? Like, do you ever get out in the country enough to where you're away from light and look at the stars? Just the depth of it and how expansive it is. Have you ever, have you ever sat and watched a thunderstorm roll in? been on the beach or something and like watch the thunderstorm roll in over the ocean. Whatever it is for you, right? You go sit up on the mountain ridge and look at the view. You go to the Grand Canyon. You've done that, right? And I don't know about you, but when I'm having one of those moments, I can at times be struck by the reality of my own insignificance. Like how small am I? God is, on the other hand, so big. Like he's so awesome. Like he's so powerful. Like I'm a speck for real. I'm like grass, perishing. I'm here today and I'm gone tomorrow. God, on the other hand, that big thunderstorm rolling in that's like scary looking to me, God tells those lightning bolts where to go. Those stars that I'm looking at and I feel like this big, he hung them in the heavens like we hang curtains. And he knows all of them by name. It's good that we would think these things on occasion and be struck by how small we are. But more than that, we can be struck by the reality that for those of us in Christ, not only does God know the stars by name, he knows your name. 
That can be sentimentalized and said in dumb ways, but that is an astonishing reality. He knows the stars by name, and he knows my name. Who am I that God would even be aware of me, right? Who is man? What is man that you would even be mindful of him, Father? And yet, though I deserve your judgment, you have saved me in Christ. What a story. What a story. What a God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we thank you and give you praise for how awesome you are, for how wise you are, for your plans that are perfect. And we come to you humbly and with thankful hearts that you have seen fit to include us in this great story of redemption that you are accomplishing and telling. We pray that we would be struck by how relatively insignificant we are and that we would be struck at the same time by the extravagance of your grace and your mercy and your love to us in Christ. We thank you most especially for Jesus, for his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, his imminent return. We pray that you would continue to sustain our faith in him, that you would continue to comfort us as we look to him. And we pray that you would minister to us now as we come to the Lord's table to think most especially on what Jesus has done in our place. Though we deserve your judgment, we get Christ's righteousness. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.